For centuries, black music, forged in bondage, has been the sound of complete artistic freedom. No wonder everybody is always trying to steal it. What you're hearing in black music is a miracle of sound, an experience that can happen really only once. Not just melisma, glissandi, the rasp of a sax, breakbeats or sampling, but the mood or inspiration from which those moments arise. The attempt to re-record, it seems, if you think about it, like a fool's errand. You're not capturing the arrangement of notes per se. You're catching the spirit. Wesley Morris, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, writing for the 1619 Project. So much can be learned from music, from listening to it, playing it, being a part of it. It has the power to wend its way into our hearts and transform our vision when we least expect it. In this episode, Jason Amos, a gifted violist, tells us a beautifully complex story of how his own musicianship, upbringing, and living in a, as a black gay man in America has shaped his perception of what it means to engage in a democracy. Jason and I discuss the power of descriptive representation that comes from having elected representatives who share, at least on some level, one's lived experiences. We also discuss how the act of making music in collaboration with others can be deeply reflective of what it feels like to engage in a deliberative democracy. We muse over whether Barack Obama is a better viola player than Jason, and bond over our shared love of my own congressional representative here in Connecticut, Jana Hayes, and Jason's in Massachusetts, Ayanna Presley. Jason talks about how, despite growing up in a middle-class Black neighborhood, he still felt the sting of racism as a child, constantly on alert for how his own presence made white community members feel. This is an alertness that came from both his own lived experience and from hearing his father's stories of growing up in Georgia, his father being someone who made sure to get home quickly from football games and not be caught in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time. Jason opens up about the existential dread he feels every time he is pulled over by the police and the generational trauma his family experiences as a result of police brutality. He and I agree that while finding common experiences to connect over is an important part of empathy building, it is vital that people in privileged positions not try to equate their own life experiences with those who do not have that same privilege. Jason expresses worry that too many people are voting out of fear, willful ignorance, and greed. As for himself, he ultimately sees his vote as an act of great hope and looks to cast ballots for those he feels will deliver more just and equitable outcomes for American democracy. In recognition and in solidarity with the protests happening around the world in response to the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and too many others, Jason has agreed to allow me to record 8 minutes and 46 seconds of silence before starting his episode. This was the amount of time it took to end George Floyd's life. I ask that you sit in this silence, 
Notice whatever you feel. Sit and be with that discomfort. Breathe deeply into it before journeying into Jason's story.
Welcome to this week's episode of What Voting Means to Me. Welcome you to this podcast, What Voting Means to Me, a podcast about democracy. Today, our guest is Jason Amos. And so, Jason, uh, I think it would be good for me to start and just tell you a little bit about what I'm looking for out of our conversation. And that is to say, I really have no expectations uh, beyond hearing about your own experiences living in a democracy. So the first question I always like to ask my guests is, tell us a little bit about yourself. It can be related to your experiences with democracy. It can just be who you are, what you do, what you're passionate about. Really big, open-ended, you know, no wrong, no wrong answer, of course, kind of question. I grew up in Southfield, Michigan, which is a suburb immediately outside of Detroit. I think that it was a it was a relatively unique childhood in that uh, you know Southfield was a relative, especially in the sort of in the '90s as I was coming grew up coming up. Uh, Southfield was a relatively prosperous town, very middle to upper middle class, great schools, all of that. And it was predominantly black. Growing up with just really incredible examples and, and surrounded by black excellence, you know, I grew up on the same street that uh, U.S. Representative Brenda Lawrence lives oh, wow. on, um, and you know, and just kind of being being young and uh, a young black man watching her kind of ascend from her position as superintendent of Southfield Public Schools to the mayor of Southfield and then eventually mm. to the U.S. representative as a U.S. representative. So I think that is kind of the basis for really, the, you know, my my worldview mm-hmm. and um, and how I, I think things should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. So I, I'm going to put a, like a little pin in that because we're going to circle back around to that in a second because it's such a great transition to what my second question always is. Uh, but I would love if you could share uh, with the listeners just a little bit about who you are today, what you're doing, yeah. what your work is, what you're Brinks. passionate about, you know, any anything you feel called to share would be lovely. Sure. So I am uh, currently living in Boston, uh, with my partner Andrew, so I'm a gay, and I. Uh, Do you want me to uh, use that in your bio? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, uh, that's that's actually how my, all my bios start. I think from now on, Jason Amos, comma a gay, comma has. Uh, so I um, so I've been in Boston now for uh, since 2007. Um, I did undergrad at the University University of Michigan uh, for viola performance. And then I did. I came to Boston for grad school at uh, New England Conservatory here in Boston. So that's why that's how I've been here since 2007. And it just kind of stuck. I spent a lot of time uh, working with various arts nonprofits, teaching and performing. You know, I've done uh, quite a bit of chamber music 
uh, work touring around the country and around the world, playing in some really cool places and meeting some really cool people. And for the last nine and a half years, I've also been building a career uh, in residential real estate sales from my role on my team is to help people purchase real estate here in Boston. Mm, yeah. And from what I, from what I can gather, so disclaimer, Jason and I are friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I tend to keep those disclaimers in there. Um, but you've been really like getting into the real estate game has been really successful for you over, over the last 10 years or so. Right. Yeah, well, you know, real estate's always been good for me. My family, so I kind of grew up in a real estate family. My uh, my mother was sort of, you know, like the, the neighborhood broker, if you will. Okay. And she was very uh, so she she had quite a bit of success in um, in and around Southfield, and um, and then my dad, who was uh, an engineer mm. with uh, Ford. Um, he, well, I guess he, I mean, he built his career in more so in management. He was a superintendent at a uh, Ford plant and, but he, he used to flip houses and mm. he would, and then, you know, when the numbers didn't work out for a flip, uh, my parents would hold on to it as a rental property. So they would have, you know, between five and 10 rentals going on uh, a lot of, a lot of, for a lot of my childhood. So I always kind of knew real estate would be um, a part in my a part of my life, whether it was sales or investing or something like that. I happened to be playing about ten years ago. I happened to be playing a concert. Um, I was playing a house concert with the string quartet I was in at the time. This woman comes up to me and asks me what uh, you know. She was she was kind of impressed with my speaking, blah blah blah, and she's like, "Would you are you ever?" would you be interested in real estate ever? And it's like, as a matter of fact, I would. And so here we are wow. nine and a half years later, um, still working on her team here. She totally understand, you know, we understand like she runs chamber music programs in the summers and I'm teaching, you know, at various places. And so we, you know, it's a very great working relationship because we also understand that creative need and, and, and help to cover and make sure that our real estate business doesn't uh, doesn't suffer because um, some of our ob- uh, obligations and just things that we want to do with music. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, I, I should I should note that you are an incredibly talented viola player. <laughs> Not Thank that you. I have any sort of skills by which I can judge, but I oh. having even just seen recordings of you play. It's very, very beautiful. I've been so glad to see over the years that you're able to continue to make music and balance that with with this career as well. Thank you. It hasn't always been easy, but it's it's been worth it. Um, you know, just to to have both, and I, I'm grateful to a lot of my music friends. You know, who who still ask me to do things, <laughs> even <laughs> though even though I can't say yes to all of the things yeah. they keep asking me. So. Thank you, friends. Keep ask, please keep asking me. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. No, that's that's so wonderful. All right. So I think this is a good point uh, to circle back around to you know you started to tell us about growing up in Michigan mm-hmm. and these formative memories you have of this congresswoman who lived on your same street. So yes. the the question I, I like to pose to my interviewees is. What is your earliest memory of 
democracy in any sense. Like it could be going to the polls with your parents. It could be seeing a campaign ad on television. You're like, what's the first time you can recall thinking like, oh, like I live in this place where someday I'll be able to vote and have a voice in this system. Like totally open-ended. I would love to know a little bit more about any experiences you had growing up. I think it was always as with, I think as with most black black households, it's pretty much just understood that we're about to vote Democrat in this house. <laughs> so I think that there was almost like a there was definitely an understanding there. But I think the first time where I kind of felt a little bit of almost like a little bit of autonomy and excitement about mm. the process itself was, I think it was it must have been sixth grade. And uh, one of our teachers um, took us to Ann Arbor and we volunteered with Rock the Vote oh, wow. to, um, to register people. Uh, and like we were, I think we were in either in the, in the league or in, like, in one of the main you know, buildings there that where students congregate and it was like a novelty where people were like, Oh my gosh, what are all these kids doing here? <laughs> like, you know, and especially, uh, you know, uh, in, <laughs> in Ann Arbor, they were probably like, what are all these black kids doing here? Oh <laughs> so. yes. yeah, Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, I, oof, God, I, I would have to fact check yeah. myself on this, but I think even today is a pretty homogenous community. Yes. Not too much, yeah. not too much that diversity was, there. I would say, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was yeah. My, my experience there as well. But, you know, so that was probably the first time where it was very, where I was like, wow, this is a whole to do. I do remember thinking at the time, why aren't people automatically registered to vote? Smart. <laughs> you were a smart sixth grader. I, I was like, why, why do we have to do this? I was like, this seems kind of like a waste of time and energy, but I was happy to do it. Yeah. And then, you know, various times in middle school where we are in middle school and high school where we did kind of mock elections at Michigan. I was on the Michigan Student Assembly. Oh, wow. Um, at the uni- at the university. Yeah. At the University mm-hmm. of Michigan. Yeah, I was on this. The, we were in charge of dispersing quite a quite a large number, quite a quite a large amount of funds to various groups that had to, you know, make proposals and things like that. So that was a very interesting experience, except I think it was you know, it was it was funny because it was a lot of like poli sci majors and like, you know, business majors and people who were like really looking to be leaders in this field. And I'm like, I'm I'm really happy to be here. I think, you know, I, I definitely I realized like, you know, kind of adding value, the value that I added. But like, <laughs> so I'm definitely not on a poli sci track. Yeah. I, I got to go practice. Um uh, but yeah, so to go back to your question, though, mm-hmm. that was definitely that uh, Rock the Vote was pretty pivotal in sort of shaping my understanding of uh, democ- how democracy kind of works. I-, I can imagine that as a sixth grader, you go to do this volunteer event, and at that age, kids can be so curious. So it's like mm-hmm. the follow-up question, well, well, what are we doing this for? Well, mm-hmm. people are registering well, what do they do next? And what a great learning opportunity. Do you, do you, I mean, I know it was so many years ago. Do you remember any sort of follow-up in the classroom? Was there like, was it a part of a unit on elections and, and democracy or was it just something that, that you guys happened to do? You know, I don't recall 
anything specific, but I will say, you know, we had some really excellent teachers, so I can't imagine that there wasn't follow-up and, and, and really kind of putting, uh, putting it into context, especially around the election, or even just like a wrap-up uh, um, in terms of how many people we registered the impact that we made, you know, that's so, it's so empowering for a kid to, to look at, you know, an election and, you know, obviously you can't vote, but you can, we, what we learned there is that we, we still had a voice, which was uh, incredibly, incredibly powerful. And actually that was probably when I, I, at that point, I did think I would probably get into politics. My in probably up in all through middle school and early high school, I think my goal was probably to be the first black president. So, you know, it would have been ruined by Obama anyway. (laughs) um, Dang it, Obama. I know, but you know, I I think at the end of the day, he's probably a better president than I would have been. So don't sell yourself short. You're, you're a remarkable human being. Well, you know, I can, I can definitely play viola better than Obama. There you go. There you go. We'll, 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 when I, when I drop this on Twitter, we'll throw, throw, we'll throw some shade at Obama. Hey, Obama, we've got a guest that says he can play viola better than you. So we'll see what happens. It's so encouraging for me to hear the folks that I've talked or that I've talked with so far on this podcast talk about their experiences growing up. And there is this common thread of students or kids having these experiences as students and being exposed to the political world, either through mock elections or through voter registration drives or even just going to the polls with their parents. It's really like we can't underestimate how important that is for shaping civic engagement down the road. So that's really mm-hmm. cool. Just the the person who cares about civic engagement and democracy in me is really happy to hear that story. That's really cool. Yeah. So I'm curious, just a quick follow-up. Uh, the student assembly, how did you get involved in that at Michigan? What was the, what's the story there? I actually don't remember exactly how I got looped in, but someone from the Defend Affirmative Action Party contacted me to, to ask if I would be interested in, in running. And I probably didn't realize the, the level of commitment that it was at the time. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. You know, I was like president of whatever, thespians and president of this and that. And I was like, okay, you know, not a problem. But I was actually, what one thing that was really surprising was the amount of pushback that I got in the school, within the School of Music with people kind of concerned about the the notion of any sort of affirmative action policy being implemented in the school of within wow. the school of music. So and which was I was like, you know, which was disappointing, but also kind of, you know, it's like it, it showed me from the very beginning, it's like who I'm not messing with up in here. It, it, it would, yeah, that was that was surprising and disappointing on certain levels, and but also I think it, it created it definitely created some uh, opportunities for 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 different conversations that I had with people who partly through no fault of their own had just really never had an opportunity to, to have conversations with people about why it is that race really does. Uh, you know, it, it touches everything. Yeah. Um, because at no point does race kind of uh, exist in a vacuum. It's like 
you can always trace whether it's health disparities, mm-hmm. disparities in you know education, housing, blah blah blah. It's like, well, these things didn't just happen. And I was just reflecting on what you're saying now, but also what you're saying about where you grew up and feeling, you know, fortunate to grow up in a neighborhood that was pretty, as as I'm understanding it, pretty prosperous and pretty well off. And I think something that's so overlooked in terms of the experience of Black Americans in the United States is that things were not great outside of the South. Like, it's oh, not yeah. like, it's not like, you know, the, the Great Migration happened in the 19, you know, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and Mm -hmm. folks came north and everything was hunky-dory in these urban centers. There was so much resistance to that. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, these disparities are, they're systemic and insidious. And it's... Yeah. And, you know, I think people, it's, it's, you know, there's so there's so much. Obviously, we we couldn't possibly begin to cover it all right now. Yeah. But you know, even when when you just look like when you look at education, like most, I think a lot of people don't understand how public schools are. Like mo- most public schools are essentially private schools because of mm-hmm. the because you have to be able to afford to live in that neighborhood to send yes. kids to that school. And then, you know, how much, how much your teachers are, how much your teachers get paid and, you know, so attracting, Mm -hmm. attracting the best talent there and, 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 and then, you know, from, I I think about housing, of course, working in real estate a lot. It's really, I think that it's, it's, it's incredible. Like in Boston, for instance, you know, it can give me whiplash a lot of times, you know, I can be working with a client downtown who is looking at million dollar investment properties. And then, um, and then on the same day, you know, I could go to a school in the city, in the same city of Boston, you know, five miles away. And uh, there are schools in Boston that don't have actually also don't have clean, they don't have safe drinking water. Oh my God. Um, You know, whether it's, uh, I think, I think it's the problem, the largely, it's largely a problem of lead pipes, Mm. Um, but the water is, the water is not safe for the kids to drink. And so it, which leads to all, then they, that means that they can't cook hot meals at the, at the school. Mm. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's just like all of these things. And, and most people in Boston have no idea that this is going on and, and such a, you know, an extremely prosperous city where you know your average your average price point uh is you know depending on whether you're looking at 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 median or mean or median you know Mm -hmm. you're 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 somewhere between six and six hundred thousand to even up to a million you know uh for property so it's yeah so now i am very fortunate i just purchased uh just purchased a condo here in the jamaica plain neighborhood of boston and we now live in a we live in an area that is represented by Ayanna Presley. Oh wow! And I was, you know, I was disheartened uh, by the pushback that you know she, because she challenged an incumbent and all of the you know all of the drama that came along with that. But coming from Southfield, where you have Brenda Lawrence representing that area 
it just made sense to me that Ayanna Presley would be the representative. Yeah. Like, it yeah. just like, I was like, yeah, this, that's who should, that's who should be. Yeah. Like it, here's an incredibly, incredibly intelligent, well-spoken woman who can, you know, really communicate uh, the ideas very clearly. She's progressive. She's going to be pushing for progressive policies. She has a proven track record here on the Boston city council. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of people were kind of like, oh, well, you know, it ain't broke, so don't fix it. And I'm like, no, I need, you know, Boston has its issues, has issues with race that had at times have made me question whether or not this is the place for me. It was a tough transition, even coming from Ann Arbor, coming to, you know, coming to Boston, yeah. uh, moving to Boston, tough socially and uh, I guess I also just kind of assume that there's a place like Southfield in most place in most towns, and the Boston Globe actually did a very uh, interesting uh, series of articles. I think it was three. It was a three part series mm-hmm. where they looked at black enclaves, right, middle class enclaves. So these are neighborhoods with uh, I forget the exact metrics they used, but you know, it's like it wasn't all that hard. It was like fifteen percent black and mm. like, you know, this uh certain maybe seventy five thousand household income, certain level of certain level of education, this percentage, certain level of, of education. So, you know, things are very, very reasonable. And you look at like areas like Detroit, the Detroit area, they went kind of by metro area. Most of the most of the cities were trending between, say, 30, 40 to 70, 80, right? And then there, there were some outliers, like Atlanta's, like, all of them. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, like a lot of New York and, like, of course, like Baltimore, the, the suburbs, you know, there and everything. So, like, it was a very um, – and then Boston, it got to Boston, it was, like, four – I think the only one that was lower was I want to say the only one that was lower was color was like Denver or something. So people don't really see the, they don't really like there's not very much visibility for the black middle class here because there isn't much of a black middle class yeah. in Boston. And so, you know, I think it's it's a shame because you it's it's difficult as a black person in Boston to kind of enter a lot of different situations and be given the benefit of the doubt yeah. right away. Whereas like, you know, I feel like in Southeastern Michigan, I think it's a very, it's, it's, it's a very dangerous proposition to, to start judging someone uh, thinking about their socioeconomic class or whatever. And not to say that, that Detroit doesn't have its issues with segregation and all of that. Of but, course. Yeah. Um, that as every, every place does. Cause <laughs> America. But, what is it? I ninety five that like splits. Is it? I no. What is seventy five? Uh, eight mile. Well, what is it? Eight. The seventy that that splits like Gross Point in Detroit and like the divide. Is it? Is that eight mile that splits? Eight mile. So eight mile splits the uh split, splits the Detroit proper, the city of Detroit between it's between Detroit and the northern suburbs. Okay. Which are some of like Oakland County where Southfield is is considered you know, one of the wealthier, mm. as you, historically been one of the wealthier, uh, wealthiest counties in the, uh, in the country, largely yeah. propped up by a lot of, you know, decent paying auto jobs, you know, that's where, and of course, you know, people, a lot of people moving, you know, 
white flight and all of that, but um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so Oakland County, Oakland County is kind of like so that's you know like I grew up between eleven and twelve mile. Okay, and yeah, but eight eight mile is eight mile is kind of a uh, this line of demarcation uh, that and the I think what you're what you were referring to was the fact that I think between Detroit and Gross Point, yes. which is just on the south side. Um, that that border is one one of or if not the most stark socioeconomic dividers in the country. I think and you're right on that. Yeah, you know, because because you know Detroit and Gross Point is like you know has a lot of the homes that would have been built for auto executives and things like that back in the day. Yeah, you know, lots of people along the water there. So. Sorry, I but didn't yeah. mean to get you. I, I just like wanted no, to pick your brain I, because Will Will and I have talked about this. Um, and mm-hmm. I actually show an image. I think it is. The, I think the inner the interstate is I seventy five that divides um, Gross Point and that and like you yeah. you look at it for, on a map and it's just should, the yeah. it's it's unbelievable. Like the green lush you know homes in Gross Point and mm-hmm. then it's just like a desert on the other side of the freeway. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So I sorry, think, I didn't mean to. Si- I no, didn't mean to sidetrack no, no, you. No, no, no. I, I look. If you don't distract me, I will certainly distract myself. <laughs> so it's all good. Um, oh, but back to Ayanna Presley. Yes, so yes, yes. I was. You know, I, I when Ayanna Presley won, that's when I was like, okay, I can do, I can do Boston mm. because I want my kids. I don't think it's too much to ask that my kids have their own Brenda Lawrence growing oh, up. Yeah. You know, where they can look at a woman and, you know, especially, uh, of course, she has. Uh, she's come out with her, uh, you know, uh, with her uh, alopecia. Uh, oh my gosh! Yes. Uh, situation, and so she doesn't have hair anymore. But when she did, you know, I looked at like it's like the, the fact that so many black women are still penalized at uh, professionally for literally just like their hair. It's like this is how my hair grows out of my head, like. And so, you know, if you don't use certain chemicals or mm-hmm. certain processes that can damage your hair, if it doesn't, you know, lay a certain way, which it's like, if that's your jam, all, all power, go Absolutely. ahead and you know, get, get your perm. Like, I'm not here to tell anybody, but like the idea that braids or twists can't be professional, you know, um, that is a you can very directly trace that back to our, you know, to our white supremacist roots in this country. Yeah. And so like there was a, there was a situation in in an an immediate suburb here uh, where these two girls got in trouble for their braids. They had like braids or twists and extensions, you know, something like, I just look at it and like, yeah, that's, that's how a lot of black girls wear their hair. And, and, and so when I saw that, that they, they had been suspended from their school because it violated the, their code or the, you know, their dress code or whatever. I would, it's, it's infuriating. And that's not a place, you know, I don't want to live in a place like that. Yeah. Um, and so when, you know, uh, and so basically I'm like, if they want to make a rule, if they want to make a law uh, or make a rule about not being able to wear your hair and twists, 
I want you to say that to Ayanna Presley's face, okay? You know? (laughs) 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 Say that to her face, that she look that her hair somehow looks unprofessional because this is, you know, this is how she chooses to wear it. So anyway, and now I want to say, and now I have to say, if you if you're rocking the bald look. And you say, and somebody says that uh, that's unprofessional. I want them to say that to her face now too. <laughs> she, I have to say, step I up mean, Diana Presley. Okay, step up to her. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tweet at her when this episode. We'll see what she <laughs> says. Um, she gets back to us. Uh, no, she. That whole oh, there's there's a couple of things I want to reflect on um, before we we move forward. But her whole revealing of her alopecia challenges and how beautifully she has embraced that. Yes. I, I felt, A, I felt queen. so queen. And I felt so deeply for her, you know, knowing that she saw herself as a role model for young black girls to wear their hair in braids mm-hmm. and how challenging that must have been. Uh, I just, I was, I was in tears when I saw her video. I could not even keep myself together. Um, Same. Yeah. So, but it's like, I mean, like, gosh, like she literally, it's like, She's just a, she's a hair icon. She's a bald hair icon. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> well, and, and in all seriousness, though, like, I, I want to point out how important the way in which, especially for marginalized folks, the way in which we present ourselves to the world has, like, real meaning beyond superficiality. I don't even know if yes. superficiality a word. I'm going to make it a word. It's going to be a word. It is now. It is It is now. Uh, and You're a doctor. You said so. <laughs> I said so. <laughs> Change approved. Uh, no, I, and and I, I as, you know, I, I was just looking at her as someone who, you know, as a female navigates the weird societal pressures that we put on female bodies and faces and hair, I, it was just, it was beautiful. It was a really, really beautiful thing. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to, there's something that I, I made this connection that I want to point out to you because I think it's really beautiful. You grew up with this figure on your street who then went on to become a congresswoman. Mm-hmm. And that, the power of that, of having that representation I can see how it's carried over into what you expect of your politics. Like I can see like, well, why wouldn't Ayanna Presley be my representative? And Mm -hmm. again, similar to your engagement, like with rock the vote as a sixth grader, these, we can't undersell the importance of descriptive representation. You know, that's what we call it. Political science, like descriptive representation. Maybe it's too formal of a word, but Having folks represent you who share, it's not about looking like someone. It's about sharing your lived experience mm-hmm. and having those representatives is so important. So that's just really standing out to me as as being something it sounds like, and you can you know correct me if I'm wrong or, or, or add anything you'd like, but it sounds like that has been something growing up and now today has really shaped sort of your, the way you orient towards the political world. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I also love to ask my guests about their, it's my understanding that you are a voter. Oh Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) And um, so I, I, I do like to ask guests to guests to reflect on either their very first vote 
or and or any vote that has been meaningful for you over your entire career as, as a voter, if there's any that stands out. But the first one or, or any, any ones in between, um, mm-hmm. any memories that stand out would be really cool to hear about. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it was, uh, gosh, that, that would have been, I guess, the 2004 election, yes. which I think actually has been referenced um, on the podcast. It has. To bring things full circle. Yeah. And, and if, you, if you decide to keep it, so I will out myself as that roommate, as one of those roommates who was devastated watching those results come in. Yeah. So I'll get I'll give yeah. the I'll give the viewers the or the viewers. Wow. The listeners <laughs> can definitely edit that out. Listeners a little context. So uh Jason was a roommate with Will, my partner. Uh Jason, DJ and Will uh lived together in 2004 it was 2003 two, no 2004 2005 school right. year and they collectively shared in a really challenging election night in 2004. So we'll let you elaborate anything, anything else you'd like to share from that experience. I think, um, you know, I being so young, I think that it somehow still just didn't, you know, with, with the way that my politics align, it was so clear to me who the right person the job was and who should be who should have been president and the fact that George W yeah George W Bush was chosen was just kind of devastating um and I I think I a lot I told myself after that that I wasn't going to get so emotionally involved or so emotionally invested in um in elections so that if it didn't go my way, or at least, you know, like I'm involved up until the election, but like not, not allow myself to kind of get emotionally attached to the idea of this person, of my candidate winning. And Mm. yet again, here comes Obama destroying that. uh, (laughs) Because then when Obama won twice in a row, I'm like, oh God, yeah, people do the people do the right thing. Like this is great. Like America is really like starting to get it. Um, and then between the polls showing Clinton, Hillary Clinton leading, and the fact that Donald Trump is a complete idiot, you know, I was like, well, surely, like Hillary, like this is like, you know, like. Do I do I love Hillary Clinton? Not so much, but I mean, put some respect on her name. The woman's been through a lot, and she's you know she's she's survived it. And um, I think you know she's in, she's incredibly competent, and there's no doubt that uh, unfortunately this pandemic if people weren't convinced by his completely incoherent rambling in press conferences or the corruption or, you know, the Mueller report, if anyone cared to read any of that, um, you know, like this is not just like a horrible president. He's a, he's not a great, he's not a good person, you Mm -hmm. know? And so it's just like, I think that, um, uh, so that was, 2016 uh, felt 
pretty tough just because I, I was pretty sure like most of us that Hillary was going to pull it off. Um, and so I don't know, I guess uh, I, I'm, I'm back to trying to not get too emotionally in, invested, even though, you know, my girl, Liz Warren didn't quite. Oh, Liz. Oh, yeah, she that, was my girl too. That broke my heart. You know, it was like, damn, you know, she's so, she's just so good at her job and she's great at explaining, breaking things down into not just like tangible bites that we, that, that most people don't have to, you know, read three different books to understand, mm-hmm. but also, um, you know, she's, she's incredibly gifted at, figuring out what is the way to to really execute on those things so disappointed yeah. but you know Biden uh, so this is I don't know when this will be airing but Biden today or just today or yesterday did said something on um what was it uh uh on a talk radio show mm-hmm. that I'm blanking on the name right now, but anyway, something about like, you know, black, you ain't black if you vote for me. And I'm like, listen, that, I think, sorry, I think you said you ain't black if you vote for Trump. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If you you don't vote for, if you don't vote for Biden or if you, if you don't vote for Biden, you ain't black or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm like, okay, you know what? Like, yes, but that's a family conversation. You can't say that shit out loud, Biden. Like, (laughs) it's like, okay, you know what? I, we all know what he was getting at, but like, oh man, really just worst possible way to put it. I ever. know. Just like couldn't, almost couldn't have chosen worse word. Most, you, you go into most black families and there's, there's some, there's some, you know, version of that, of that talk going on in terms, you know, but like, it's, it's also, we don't really, it's, it's understood. Like you don't necessarily need to. And also, you know, like, like, don't ostracize, like, yeah. black people who might feel, who might, you know, identify more as moderate. And, like, if a Republican who presents as non-racist, which I have strong, I have strong feelings about of pretty course. much all Republicans, which is, I mean, well, okay, I'm just going to say, I think that <laughs> I feel it. like I, there are very few votes cast for Republicans that are that where the vote isn't based in fear, ignorance, or greed. Mm. Fear about whatever, you know, maybe they're, they're, so maybe it's they're fearing God. Maybe it's actually God they fear. They, they don't want to, you know, they, they, they feel like if they vote for somebody who supports abortion and... Or LGBTQ rights like, or, you know, any yeah, of those social, social issues, yeah. Right, which is like, it's like, okay, you know, like... I get it. You don't want to, you don't like abortion. Like it's not the most pleasant thing to think about, but like at the same time, like folks are going to get their abortion. You can make it safe or you can, or you can make it harder for underserved women to get them because of course all of the wealthy girl, you know, the wealthy girls growing up in, again, you know, growing up in the, the wealthy zip codes, they can even if if abortion wasn't even legal in the states, they could you know they could hightail it to Toronto from Detroit to you yeah. know or they don't you don't even go to you can go to Ontario right right across the border in Windsor you needed some services so, so anyway fear ignorance people not obviously people not questioning 
people not questioning misinformation that is that's being fed to them. You know, I think people people get uh, bothered by the term ignorance is to think that like you know this person is ignorant or dumb. It's oh, like, you can no. be a very intelligent person and be very ignorant. Exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, and then I've been there. Then, Shit, jeez. Yeah, we all. Um, yeah. exactly. I mean, and this is not this is not me. In terms of like these three things, this is not me throwing stone because I, I we've all done things out of fear, ignorance, or greed. Right. Mm-hmm. I just, I for one, have never voted. <laughs> out of, yeah. Out of and then the greed, you know, of course, people think being very myopic about what's best for my family and what's, what you know, what, what, which is, you know, understandable to a point ex- until you're like voting for a system that completely screws um, other people and contributes to inequality. So, yeah. Anyway, that not dichotomy, the categorization, like voting based out of ignorance, fear, and greed, or however the greed, ignorance, fear, mm-hmm. whatever order you put it in, it's, it's like a really, I hadn't really thought about it that way. And it makes a lot of sense. Just from like yeah. a, a human perspective, it makes sense, you know? You know, it's like, it, and, you know, and then, and then they, the two, the way that those two intertwine in terms of like, like people are afraid uh, you know, like they, they really work together. Like people are afraid um, that they are going to somehow be wor- that they're, they're going to be worse off financially. You know, if because they're they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm a small business owner and blah blah blah, and I, you know, I want to I, I want to vote for who I'm voting for whoever is paying whoever I have to pay lower taxes. And it's like, well, you know, and then and then that that person votes for a Republican. It's like, wouldn't you wouldn't you kind of like it if you, the, your surrounding community had a little bit of money to come and buy your goods? Like, you know, yeah. Like, no, I'm not an econ- I'm not an economist. I'm not, but that yeah, makes I'm not, sense. Yeah, exactly. That I don't makes- I don't I don't claim to be one either. But like, it just seems like if you take it, like anytime you take it, like one step further, it's like kind of makes sense it's like we should not be screwing over this generation with student loan debt because when you it's like you go to retire and you want to sell your house you want to sell this million dollar house well you know you need you need people who have income but also people who don't have uh you know two thousand dollar student loan payments yes yeah. So, uh, you know, I think I think I guess I, I I typically think about it from like a real estate perspective in, in that sense as well. My struggle is to I try I have to try to not be so outwardly frustrated. Like mm. when I've had like I haven't really I, I've I've kind of worked myself into a bubble here where most you know I most of it has just kind of been deleting toxic people who you know don't think maybe who don't think I should maybe have the same rights as they do (laughs) well uh deleting those people from my life and so it's like I I, on the one hand I really want to be open and like I want to you know I want people to know that like I am willing to have these conversations however it has to be in the context of like whatever at the you have to check Whatever you enter somebody else's space, you have to check your own rights at the door. I think I see where you're going. I, w- I want to help sort of draw draw oh, this out a little bit. Example. Yeah, okay, so, go ahead. <laughs> so 
Um, I mean, okay, here's actually the best, the best example. People are all, you know, liberty and freedom. And you're seeing all these videos of very upset white people, mostly, let's be real, not wear, refusing to wear masks because they're all up in, you know, they're all pro protesting about haircuts, and but they're all up in arms about not being, you know, being forced to wear a mask in public space because of their rights. And they're so fixated on their rights and what they think that they should be able to do that they're completely losing track of the fact that this is about, this isn't just about, it's not always just about you, actually. It is about the health of somebody else. And so if somebody else could potentially die because you're not wearing a mask, guess what? You know, I'm that's you you're losing rights, you know? <laughs> like or you never you never really had that right. No, yeah. nobody has the nobody has the right to put somebody else in danger. That's why we have speed limits on roads. That's why we have mm. oh, that's why we have regulations that are supposed to be in place for the EPA. You can't just say, oh, well, my company needs to make more money, so we have to, you know, we really have to pollute this this waterway, this, yeah, you got the right to do what you're doing as a company until it impacts other people's health. And it's just, it's infuriating that people can't see that. Yeah. As you were looking for an example, that's the one that came to my head as well about the masks. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I want to relate to you when you say, I think I need to spend time more time being less outwardly frustrated because I can't tell you the number of times I've wanted to just scream and mm. not understanding how someone else doesn't see this picture mm. that you and I are painting. And I think what, I don't know, I think what helps me is to think about folks who, folks who won't wear a mask they're they're acting from a place of fear. That's get this gets yeah. back to your fear and you know probably some. I hate to say it like willful ignorance. Um, yes. You know, yes. uh, uh, this is what in political science this is what we would call motivated reasoning. Um, mm -hmm. When you are strongly wedded to a belief or an idea. Okay, let's take the idea that the coronavirus is fake or it's a hoax mm -hmm. or it's not real, mm -hmm. and it's not just that you have this thought, it's that it becomes a part of like your core belief system. And when that's challenged, you just dig in even more. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see. And I don't it's know. Like, you know, it's funny. It's something that like, it's like a, it's a skill that we kind of learn as chamber musicians, all, all mm. like to, or musicians in general, I think kind of, kind of, uh, can, well, not all, but a lot of musicians, I think it's, we, we kind of take for granted that the process of becoming a professional musician and studying music, especially, and especially playing when you're playing and singing music, when you're making music with others is that, you know, you, you come to the rehearsal with an idea and it's so, it's like, this is the way that you know this string quartet, like you, this is the way, this is the first recording, it, the first recording that you ever heard played it just like this. And this is the way that you believe and with every fiber in your being that this is the way that this piece needs to be played. And 
you, you need that energy mm-hmm. in order to try to, you know, come in and convince somebody to, and so that you can collectively convince the audience. But at the same time, you also need to be able to listen when somebody says, well, you know, actually try somebody else's idea and they, and say, Hey, this act, you know what, this, this, the way that I've been doing this my whole life and the way that I've learned it and the way that I've practiced it actually may not be the most effective way. And, you know, that like a string quart, playing in string quartets, you really, you know, for a string quartet to, to last for more than two rehearsals, you really kind of have to be, to be flexible in that way. Yeah. And actually it was interesting. My string quartet uh, that I played with, uh, we used to do this class in a, uh, at Bentley University. We used to come and do like a little guest lecture, kind of open rehearsal. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. For a, uh, uh, it was like part of a, um, an emotional intelligence section within an, an ethics business ethics course. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of like, you know, it was very interesting to see how the students would be like the student, like at, at every single time after we got done with our open rehearsal, the students would say, you know, I was really blown away by how he, you guys had a disagreement and the, you guys, and you basically tried it. You each gave it a really good go. You gave, you really tried it each other's way. And then you guys had a democratic vote about oh my God. What, you know, what, what sounded better. And it was like, and they were like that, like what a concept. They're like, you actually gave somebody else's idea a, sh- a real shot. And it's like, you know, I, and so that to bring it back, I am, I have been wrong about politicians. I have been wrong about policies. Mm -hmm. I have been wrong. I will probably be wrong uh, in the future. I'm not, I'm not committing to that. (laughs) (laughs) You you and me both. Yeah. Right. But like, you know, like nobody, nobody's perfect. And we, we, we learn and we know better. We read, you know, like, like whatever education policies, you know, in terms of, or, you know, where, where money is best spent. Like I'm open, show me the data. Like if I, if I'm wrong, then all right, let's then tell me some, tell me a different way to do it. And then maybe, maybe we can try that. But like folks are just not even looking at the damn data, you know, it's like, you, we got to start at the same, we have to start at a point of yes. like at some sort of objective point that is, no, that's not, you know, Fox News. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So it's like, I guess those are the people that I have a real hard time, like, talking to. And I don't really, I don't really have them in my life right now. Well, and I will say this. Any person who is deeply invested in a propaganda network which mm-hmm. Fox News very much appro- approximates. There's there's been some interesting scholarly work on this. Approximates a propaganda network, and and there are yep. certainly liberal outlets that do as well. But mm-hmm. it's my understanding that the investment in a Fox News, or I don't know if MSNBC would be considered an equivalent of a Fox News. I I, I guess it probably would. Folks who are invested in those, it's not just about like, oh, this is my information source. It does become a part of their identity because yeah. it's so maligned. Like, I'm a Fox News viewer. I totally. and, and that makes sense. again, when that identity is challenged, the 
fight or flight center in our brains just go like haywire and we have mm-hmm. to resist it. But it's, it's so challenging. Well, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I was going to, and especially, you know, a lot of people who are not used to being challenged. Yeah. You know, like they're, if you are a, if you grow up in, you know, a, a homogenous area where you, or if you, if you grow up white in America, basically, you're mm-hmm. you're kind of people. People give you the benefit of the doubt. People, there are, and, and there's lots of data around like outcomes, even within like the same socioeconomic groups mm-hmm. in terms of you know black versus white and or and different races and everything. Which we obviously, I, I I'm already way over our, my no it's fine I I I time, but, no 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 um, it's it's totally fine no I I mean I I think I think what I try to when, especially when I have conversations with some of my students around privilege that can be really uncomfortable mm-hmm. I say to them none of privilege doesn't mean that you haven't had challenges in your life or a difficult life it just means it's yeah. not difficult because of the color of your skin right if you're I white mean, you know that's the thing it's like I recognize that I was very fortunate to grow up in a school district that had some of the highest paid teachers in the state of Michigan. I had a lot of advantages, you know, I went, went to the fancy orthodontist, uh, <laughs> you know, like, oh, you do have a beautiful like, smile. <laughs> Thanks mom. And actually, and, and then I bust, I busted up my teeth. Uh, and that was expensive too. Oh so no! Thanks, thanks again, <laughs> mom. But you know that doesn't change a lot of you know. There's there's still some some generational trauma of in course. the family surrounding race. You know, like I I think the the death of Ahmad Arbery was was kind of it was triggering. I mean, they're all all every time where you ha- where you have these deaths of black people on especially on film which is like it's so horrible that it's on film it's it sucks because it's like you know i hate that this video exists but obviously i'm really grateful that this video exists because otherwise you know justice would be that much more difficult to even attempt yeah um but you know like i think about my my dad who grew up in columbus georgia Mm. and uh he was an army brat so he was on uh, near Fort Benning there. And, you know, he was, he had a comfortable upbringing, I would say, you know, his dad was inspector general at okay. Fort Benning. So, you know, not doing too bad, but, uh, he was still, he was like, you know, when back in, back in the day we would, um, uh, you know, if we were coming home from a football game, we would sometimes leave a little bit early or, you know, really just like run home so that we didn't get caught up in any bad situations Mm. and the bad situation that he's taught that he was talking about is exactly what happened to the moderate where you're in you're really you're literally just going about your daily life you happen to stumble in the wrong neighborhood and you are killed yeah Um, and then you know like I mean, I, I'm sure everybody gets tense when they get pulled over by the police or, you know, when they have interactions with sure, police. But, yeah. you know, I have one of my, uh, my oldest uncle on my mom's side 
was uh, shot and killed by a police officer oh in his 20s. This was in the in the mid to late 60s, okay. uh, somewhere around 1967. He was actually the victim of road rage, and which I think led to, uh, which escalated, mm-hmm. and then he actually ended up leading them, or the, the situation, he, he went to a police station for help. And then uh, the police ended up shooting him. Oh my shooting god! And killing him. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think it's like all the the you know all the middle class upbringing in the world doesn't erase the thought in my head that you know when I get stopped by the police, I, I just like I I really I'm acutely aware that I could die. Yeah. In this moment. Um, by making the wrong move and, um, you know, and it's in various ways, you know, black, black children have, you know, we, we already, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of taught to kind of adjust our behavior. Mm -hmm. I I was going to ask if your parents, I'm assuming they had like the talk with you. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, certainly there were, there were many talks but mm-hmm. you know there's also like and, and you know all of our friends like at our friends group if we were somewhere you know just kind of being teenagers or you know being kids being preteens teenagers and we suddenly and you know we started getting looks and we're like you know the joke was always the running joke is oh don't scare the white people don't scare the white people <laughs> you know I it's should like, laugh I'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry but it's true it's like you know it, it was a joke so it's fine that, like we're you know because we're like we're like, don't scare the white people because we don't want, you know, we don't want any trouble, even though we're like, obviously we're doing the same thing that these kids are doing, these mm-hmm. other kids from this wealthier suburb, that's wealthier and whiter suburb. Uh, you know, we're doing the same damn things, we're making, making the same noise. But, you know, uh, of course, it's we always we always understood that it's that it's a problem. For yeah. Us to, to, to kind of be our full selves in, in mixed company, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you will. So I think about some of the things that, uh, you know, that have, that have been, uh, so, you know, part, unfortunately part of my family history and, you know, the, the dichotomy or the, the, um, the tension between that and then, the, you know, the dissonance between that and the, uh, you know, the fear of just being black in America versus the feeling of like growing up black in a middle-class black neighborhood Mm -hmm. is really something. And, you know, I think, thank goodness there were lots of things that I took, uh, that I took for granted, you know, like, like the, like the politics in my area that that you know white people have always taken for granted that you're yeah. gonna, that at least you know that there's going to be there's going to be some sort of shared experience with you and your elected officials at some level at at some point on some level yeah and um so yeah 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 no and, and oh my god again i i I just think about the power of that descriptive representation. I can hear it in your story and the way that you speak about 
where you grew up and living now with Ayanna Presley as your representative. Johanna Hayes is my representative. I love her oh my so God, much. I love look she has her smile could like get me through a long dark winter. I love her very I, much. When she did her uh, campaign launch with that video when she was like, "Oh yeah," you know, my students asked me, "Well, why don't you?" Or so you know, somebody. I think it was she said her like her students asked why she didn't run for U.S. Congress, and she said, "So I said I would," you know, and I was like, "I, I cried big old, I love ugly, her, I love her, nasty, ugly tears, like." Oh, oh, it was, she's I amazing. Was she's I amazing. Was it was um, grandma funeral to <laughs> So like, watching that video. I, I want to make one observation and then I have one more question for you. Yes. You know, you talking about you have this experience growing up in a middle class neighborhood with a, a lot of advantages, of course, but talking about the generational trauma that has been in your family. And I, mm-hmm. I think I just want to say and affirm that that is so real. And I don't think folks quite understand what it's like to walk through the world constantly with your surveillance threat activated. Mm-hmm. Is that make sense? Yes. Like, and I, Absolutely. the only, and I, I, I don't want to, um, try to equalize or compare our experiences, but just to sort of offer like the only thing that gives me even like a smidgen of like direct perspective is like, I don't know how I feel as a female on a run by myself. But like when I get pulled over by the cops, I'm yeah, I'm nervous. Oh God. Like, what did I do? Was I speeding? Did I not use my turn signal? I don't fear for my life. Mm -hmm. And there there's real things that are happening in your body when you are that stressed and when you're that alert. And so I just want to, I don't know, I I guess just like affirm, um, you know, based on, you know, what I know as someone who thinks a lot about trauma from my own personal perspective in terms of different things that have happened in my life. And of course, of course you have those experiences. And, you know, honestly, I wish, I wish that, you know, and I I know that, of course, you you being so incredibly considerate and aware, and all of these amazing things, you're you know you're careful not to directly relate your experience, your of course experience not. Oh my gosh, in terms of sex and race. But I also wish that more people could see some of the more obvious things that do relate. Yes, know, and, and or the like, and which is like, I, I wish that people. I wish that more. I wish that more white women, you know, of course, didn't align themselves with with white supremacy in order to preserve their privilege. Yes. You know, like like people who, you know, women who women who are, you know, super progressive and who consider themselves to be super progressive and are 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 really with it, but then they marry somebody who is like a freaking Trump supporter and if they're like oh well you know it's like love it's about love and it's like in I mean like you know like racism and misogyny go hand in hand oh like, yeah you can't just uh you know the the idea that that you that the, the idea that some people can completely What's the word? Compar- um, compartmentalize, maybe. Thank you. Yeah, the fact yeah. That the idea that some people can completely compartmentalize that 
you know, which can be something really heinous about someone and be like, oh, but they're a good provider. It's like, oh, jeez, you know, yeah. I, I hate that shit. Yeah. I hate that so much. Um, and so I, uh, so yes, to say that I, I, I appreciate your words, but, and I, re- and I wish that more people understood that, and you know, that the, the commonalities between, um, different marginalized and, groups yes, and yeah marginalized yes. groups like if all if if marginalized groups you know all just like stood up and were like no more like it would have mm-hmm. you know uh, <laughs> you know or like there would there would still be the, the republican both the republican and the democratic party would be shifted far more progressive yes yes um so you know i i wish i wish that for us as a country yeah yeah i i think i think for me as i try to not like hmm, how do i want to say this as i try to put myself in the shoes of my companions and family members and friends who have different experiences than I do, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's about finding those commonalities without making it about you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, right. it's like, it's, that's yes. Yes. Thank you. That's, that, it's like, you, you have to say, you have to, you have to find the commonality to say that, like, I can, I, like, I'm relating to you on a certain level and that, these are, you know, the, the, there are experiences, different experiences that kind of made us feel the same feelings. Yes. And, and the, that's very real. Um, but obviously, like, you know, you just like nobody, well, I was going to say nobody wants to, but like so, a lot of people do. But like, you, you it, it's, it's just not a good look to be that, that white woman like, yes, you know, I've grown up extremely privileged in all of my life. And, uh, but I totally am oppressed like a black person. It's like, oh, oh no, that's where I'm going to, oh no, that's where I'm going to stop you. <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, 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 of course, I know that that's not, you, you would never even think. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, but I, but yeah, but I definitely, definitely, you know, the, the part about this, about having, um, you know, similar feelings about different experiences, I think can be a really good driving force to absolutely bring this together to vote these motherfuckers out. <laughs> okay. So no, this is, oh, this is such a great segue to my last question. Um, yes. the, to vote these motherfuckers out. I'm going to have to put this as an explicit episode, but that's fine. We've talked my about bad. this. No, no, no. I've <laughs> said, I think I've sworn more than you. Um, I, I, I want to, you, you were talking about thinking, hmm, you were talking about folks who, seem to vote out of these three things, fear, greed, and ignorance. Mm-hmm. I would love to know what, what do you vote out of? Like, what does that act mean to you? I vote out of hope. Um, and I try to, I try to insert as much pragmatism as my heart will allow Mm. um because i do understand that you know everybody is on different journeys and uh you know there are and you know especially when you think about like economic policies they're all they're always more directly than like you know than i was putting it before there there are winners and losers and sometimes at some point you know there's that survival 
mechanism that you know you were talking about but like i vote i i vote for you know basically i just vote for whoever i think can be can can deliver us to a place that's more just that's more equal even if it means like i mean i hate I hate paying taxes too, but like it's not it's not a fun thing. It's not my it's not, it's not no. my favorite activity, especially <laughs> as a you know mostly ten ninety nine income. So oh like, yeah. Um. So I, but I, you know, I believe that it's absurd that so many people re- literally just make money off of their money and are taxed less than somebody, you know, so many people who are out there mm-hmm. really hustling uh, to make it happen. And I vote for kids. Uh, I think especially I always think about kids of color and educate and the educational opportunities um, that they might have. I wish I wish that more people could see, you know, I wish that more, I wish that every Bostonian like took place in a tour of every, every public school in the city. Oh my God. Um, Because then, you know, they might have a different opinion about, you know, whether they pay 5,000 versus $6,000 in real estate taxes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, when you look at that eighty something dollars a month or whatever, you know it work out work, work out to be. Um, sorry, maths, <laughs> math, <laughs> quick math. <laughs> when you look at, yeah, you know when you look at uh, you know let's say a twelve hundred dollars, an extra twelve hundred dollars a month. It's like there are you know for a lot of Bostonians, a hundred dollars a month would not make that much of a difference and mm-hmm. of course this this doesn't this doesn't account for of course the people who who you know have these homes or have been in their homes for you know 30 years and wouldn't be able to afford because this is not everybody's experience but like mm-hmm. you know the vast majority of bostonians who own this real estate can afford to pay more in real estate taxes so that we can get these damn schools in shape yeah. These kids can drink some water in Mattapan from a fountain and not one of those weird corporate bubblers things. Oh my God. Uh, like the, the um, water, what the water machine, the water yeah. cooler that yeah, like, like thinks they're in cooler. offices. Yeah. 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 Like, and then, oh, and oh, by the way, and then like half the time there's no cups. Oh my so, God. So, you know, it's just like, it, it's a whole mess. It's a whole mess. Um, you know, okay. So here's, I like, I taught at a school that 10 years ago, didn't have a playground there was no play no actual playground equipment they had like a blacktop but like not real playground uh they didn't have gym class they didn't have music regular music class they didn't have a library in their school an elementary school with no library what they had a they had a little library book that um would get carted around like a, a library cart that got pushed around to different classrooms, but it was like not a dedicated space. And even they, even after they got a library, they ended up needing to use the space as a specialty classroom sometimes. So it wasn't, but like, you know, when I think of, when I look at like Southfield and the, like when I was in maybe fourth or fifth grade, 
Leonard Elementary School, which sadly I think is closed or like has transitioned into some sort of different learning mm-hmm. institution situation. But, you know, they built this amazing new library, this, uphold this amazing media center. And it, I remember walking in there for the first time and the smell of that combination of the smell of books with uh with the combined with the new construction smell Mm, mm -hmm. oh my god I can that it's I can remember it so vividly and how and and, you know the big windows and how Mm. cozy you know it's like grand and cozy at the time you know it felt grand to me I was like three feet tall but (laughs) I'm pretty I'm pretty sure it was like you know really grand space yeah Um, and oh my gosh I, you know, if, if you weren't inspired to read a book before that, then walking in that space, you sure mm-hmm. as hell are afterwards, you know? Yeah. It's like, that's, it's, you know, that such an under space in our schools, I think, you know, is so under, so undervalued in terms yeah. of the experience that the students have, you know, you have kids uh, in a lot of areas where the ceilings are falling down on the kids. Like there's a reason why, like, churches are so grand right you know and like mm-hmm. so beautiful it's like you it's inspiring right it's in, it's inspired yeah and um I don't know I feel like we need to get back to the business of inspiring people Ooh. with architecture starting in the schools oh yeah so, I I'm so impressed with how you connect and understand like the role that your individual voice and vote plays in facilitating these kinds of things. Because we think about voting and elections and it's the presidential elections get so much attention and pizzazz mm-hmm. and local elections matter. Oh, they so matter and votes on, you know, uh, millages and property taxes and uh, bond issues. Like those things are so undervalued in terms of the public voice. Um, so it's really encouraging to hear that you mm. have that perspective. Well, I think okay. this is a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much for taking this time, Jason. I cannot tell you how much it means to me. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you and yeah. everything that you, everything that you do. I, I know from actually running into one of your students here in Boston that That's all right. of your students, all of your students love you. And <laughs> uh, I, if, if I was back in college, I would definitely take. Oh, I do, I do what I can. I do what I can. Sure.